Hi, welcome to In Sync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm your Sue host, Aviv Rubenstein. Very nice. Host de cuisine. FX and Hulu's high-stress comedy drama, The Bear, might be a show about a young culinary genius returning to his Chicago hometown to run the family's floundering Italian sandwich shop left to him by his late brother, Michael, but it's also a show with an outstanding collection of needle drops. Starring Jeremy Allen White as Carmi, the Bear, Berzato. The Bear just premiered its highly anticipated second season all at once on Hulu. While The Bear's inaugural season was largely about Carmi's attempt to keep the just barely functional family restaurant, The Beef, afloat in the face of crippling debt, pre-existing family tensions, and his own personal demons, the show's second season focuses largely on him trying to open a new, high-end establishment called, naturally, The Bear. While there are many, and I do mean many, music moments to choose from, Holy shit. and we'll get into how we ultimately settled on the one for this episode, Aviva and I really honed in on this triumphant scene in season two, episode seven. Forks. Forks, where Richie, brilliantly played by Eben Moss Backrack, drives home lasting Taylor Swift's 2008 country pop ballad, Love Story. Why was this such an effective music moment on the bear? And why does this episode Forks mark such a turning point for Richie? And how did Rachel get me to agree to do a podcast episode about Taylor Swift. <laughs> Warning, spoilers ahead. If you have not seen this episode of The Bear, we suggest tuning in after you've watched Forks. Plus, we're joined today by Colleen Koparek, labor organizer and former pastry chef, on what The Bear gets right and wrong about being in the kitchen and loving what you do. All this and more on the latest episode of InSync. Yes, chef. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Before we hone in on this particular episode and Taylor Swift music moment, which it doesn't really matter how you feel about Taylor Swift. Not at all. Not at all. I I also am not anti-Taylor Swift. You don't have to be a Taylor Swift fan because lately it really feels like 
like a with us or against us kind of thing when it comes to liking Taylor. Like, you can't just be a casual Taylor Swift fan. But all that aside, there were so many good needle drops. There's a lot of talk about uh, REM needle drop that gets done like multiple times over the course of season two. And one time plays backwards. Huh. Nuts. Peek behind the curtain. We knew that we wanted to do an episode about the bear. And we were like, this is going to be a low impact episode. We don't need a guest and we don't need to watch the entirety of the new season. We're just going to do one of the songs from the first season and it'll be a great and fine episode. And then both of us were like, well, let's just like watch the first episode of season two to see if we're missing something. Cut to like (laughs) eight hours later, we're both finished with the season and we both immediately decided it was like it was like instantaneous that we knew that this Taylor Swift moment had to be the, the yeah. f- focus of the episode. Basically, Aviv texted me like there's a major Taylor Swift moment. <laughs> and I, and I, I hadn't quite gotten there. And I was yeah. like, I was like fighting against the clock to get all of the episodes in because it is a relatively quick watch, being that each season has Let's see, the first season has eight episodes and the second season has ten episodes. Yeah. And each episode mostly is, a half an hour, but not 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 always a half an hour. But season two is so well, they are both high stress, but season two is incredibly stressful in a very different way. And so I'm just like fighting and pushing to make it through every episode and getting more and more emotional and then I finally make it to Forks, get to that moment. I'm like, yep, there, there's really no contest. Because this moment is like, like you could argue that all of season two is like each character. It probably evokes the most character growth for each character with the uh, exception of the bear himself. And I think we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, I think that there is like negative character growth, right? He's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory at the end of the season. That's really well put. But first, let's let's first. give a little background on the bear. I find this difficult. This is like my, you know, the thing that I'm always tasked with on the show. And I find it difficult to do with movies. So I'll try my best to do this with the entire two seasons of the bear. The show follows Carmen Berzato, played by Shameless's Jeremy Allen White, sometimes referred to as the Bear, sometimes referred to as Carmi, sometimes called Jeff. Uh, or Jeffrey. Or Jeffrey now in the season, which is a fun Aviv, Did you joke. watch Shameless? I did not. I did. I watched the pilot of Shameless and I was so, I hated Frank so much. Yeah, he's pretty that I couldn't, reprehensible. I couldn't watch it. I couldn't deal with Frank. Well, he he made it pretty impossible to <laughs> be dealt with. And and there's also just so much that it can probably feel overwhelming, like near the end of what, like all of 12 seasons. Yeah. That being said, I did watch most of Shameless, and I'm a big fan of Jeremy Allen White. And- he, is, he is fantastic. He's unbelievably good in this his character is a a fine dining chef who after burning out at the best restaurant in the world noma he inherits his brother michael's failing roast beef sandwich shop after michael dies by suicide and the kitchen is full of what people in philly would call old heads Hmm. led by cousin richie played impeccably by my new favorite actor evan moss backrack and a kitchen staff the entire kitchen staff is very set in their ways the last spice that we add to this dish is hmm. Ao Edibiri, 
who plays Sydney, who's a young woman who idolizes Carmi's cooking and needs a job. I think she just got fired from UPS. Is that it's unclear? It's unclear whether she left of her own accord. There is some tension with her character around what her father, who is slightly more traditional, would like her to do, like yes. get a nice a like, job at Boeing. Yeah, a job at Boeing. Yeah, something something more stable. Even if it's not fulfilling and and Sydney has big dreams and major talent. And we're going to talk to Colleen about some of the toxic traits that Sydney might exhibit. Um, but she quickly becomes the chef de cuisine at this restaurant that only basically has five things on the menu. Season one of the show has all the markers of a TV golden age prestige show, including famous cameos. Oliver Platt plays Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy, right? Uncle, I think so. Yeah, I just uh, have started thinking of him as Unc. Hey, Unc. Unc, right? That's why I didn't. I couldn't remember his first name. But he's <laughs> yeah. great. Film grain overlays. They definitely are not shooting this on film, but they're trying really hard to make it look like they're shooting on film. And an episode that's entirely one single take, which is the seventh episode of season one. And side note. Uh, a one take episode seems to be like the bar mitzvah for artsy <laughs> TV shows. Every prestige show I can think of will have an extended sequence or even a whole episode done in one single take, like with no cuts. Yeah. And I think this trend was started or either started or revived by True Detective, which did a big like trailer park shootout in a, in a oneer. That's what it's called in the industry, yeah. a oneer. <laughs> but it was followed by Stranger Things, Kidding. Daredevil, Mr. Robot, who does an entire 43-minute episode in one take. You're the worst. And now the bear. Love, and you're the worst. And love, also, you're the worst. Love, have, I love doing this podcast with someone who knows the film industry so <laughs> well. Because I learn a lot. Thanks. Yeah. I think that this is the equivalent of how big shows used to do live episodes back when broadcast TV was a thing. ER did a live episode. I think Friends did a live episode. 30 Rock did a live episode. Yeah, 30 Rock, I think, did a couple of live episodes. They did, and they did them like East Coast, West Coast versions, which is funny. I digress. By the end of season one, Carmi and the rest of the staff of The Beef decide to close the neighborhood paper napkin place in favor of a fine dining experience built from the ground up and, of course, called The Bear. Season two starts with six months until opening and just everything is fucked. And worse, everyone seems to be having an identity crisis. Sydney loves the work that she's getting to do, but she has the yips with her menu and she keeps creating just horrible, inedible dishes. This seems to be a result of her need for Carmi's attention, which he is withholding because he's kind of an asshole and doesn't really know any better. And he gets a girlfriend in this season. Yeah. Claire Bear, played by... Molly Gordon. Molly Gordon. The great Molly the Gordon. The great Molly Gordon. From... Uh, uh, Booksmart. I was I was not thinking Booksmart. I was thinking from Shiva Baby. And Shiva Baby. Oh, Shiva Baby. So and good. she's in that new movie that she wrote with Platt. What's his name? Ben Platt. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the theater camp. camp. The theater camp, camp movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is high on many of our friends' watches. I bet it is. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I can watch that movie. I mean, I probably will watch that movie, <laughs> but it just it's just triggering me from my college days because I went to a very theatery college. I, I fucking bet. Yeah. <laughs> There's been some discussion online whether Carmi and Sydney's relationship is romantic or should be romantic, or if she just wants the professional attention of her boss, someone whose work she idolizes. What What do you yeah. think? I'm actually really glad that 
you wrote this note in because I don't see this as a romantic relationship at all. First of all, I think if they ever actually got together, they would murder each other. And I'm not I'm actually I'm not sure which one of them would. I think that they bond over food, obviously, and their ambition, both of them and their being psychologically, let's say, arrested development based on how what they've done to uh, move their professional lives ahead, but their yeah. emotional lives. Stay. They don't have communication skills whatsoever. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting. You know how the first season of The Bear, everyone online is like lusting after Jeremy Allen White? Yes. Totally get it. He is a tasty treat. <laughs> Including but not limited to Our Lady and Savior, Jennifer Coolidge? Yeah, Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, Jennifer Coolidge. Well, it's not that he's fully deserving of this. Yes, that said, I do remember, I don't remember like if it was the creator of the show who said it, but someone in charge of the show was like, hey, we get it. He's hot, but he doesn't fuck. (laughs) Right, right, right. He like, he says in season two that he's never had a girlfriend, never been on a date. And like the first season, there's no question that he's just, there is no love interest. Right. This is how he has framed his life. He's dedicated everything to his craft and is emotionally stunted, arguably because of it, in addition to having a an utterly batshit family and all the good and the bad that that mm-hmm. entails. We do we meet his mother, we see where Holy, that yeah. co- I'm not trying to just boil this all down, no pun intended, to mother issues, but there are we, definitely some other issues. In there. there are some other. He's got major issues. And the second season, it's like it's like watching someone who has literally never stepped into a pool before try to swim. Right. Uh, when you see him try to have a relationship with his longtime crush, Claire. And there is a, a, a law, another long kind of one take scene where Sydney and Carmi fix like a wobbly table or an uneven yeah. table and it's very clear that the filmmakers are telling us that there is this chemistry between them and whether the the chemistry is romantic or professional and whether the characters can even tell the difference i don't I th- think they can that I, I think, think they both have shut down the romantic parts of them it's like a light switch mm-hmm. it's just off in the off position that's why sydney has this will they won't they kind of thing going on with marcus the pastry chef and every time he gets close to her she freaks out yeah so they're they're both emotionally stunted in similar ways and even if they thought about getting together it just wouldn't happen i think because they they both have so much work to do with themselves yeah. and i don't even think that sydney sees carmy that way like regardless of whether she finds him attractive and vice versa i think that they they're like a sort of a crutch for each other and they treat each other like garbage because they're so close to each other and so yeah. alike and and for her part, Ao Edibiri said, if anything happened between Sydney and Carmi, no one would be happy. It would be disappointing and jarring and weird. However, that does not mean that's not going to happen. From what I know about working in restaurants, this is the kind of thing that definitely would happen. 
and that and it would just it would be as toxic as you could possibly imagine and they would kill each other so i'm not i don't think that it's not going to happen i think that it might happen but ultimately they do not belong together and i think you put it perfectly that they're they've turned their romantic understanding of the world off like a light switch and when their wires accidentally get crossed and they hook up like that's gonna be a huge problem yeah i mean they internalize it way more than your average person would because they have so much anxiety over well if i take my eye off of the prize they already have so many odds stacked against them that they really feel, and I'm making this up. I mean, we get more like verbal confirmation from from Carmi rather than Sydney, but they are like, well, it, like so much is stacked against me professionally that if I put my attention on anything else, and there already have been fuck ups that I'm blaming myself for, then. Like everything will fall apart. The stakes, no pun intended, are so high in their minds that they don't fuck. <laughs> they don't fuck. No one fucks. No one fucks. You're 100% right. And this is kind of rounded out by Sydney's strained relationship with her dad, who, like you said, understands kind of that she wants to be a chef, but doesn't really understand why she's risking everything, opening a restaurant with this basic stranger, and foregoing her salary for six months to help the bear, the restaurant, not the person, get off the ground. But the storyline that we're talking about mainly this week is Richie's. Sydney's story is mirrored by Richie's in this season because cousin Richie, he's not actually Carmi's cousin. He's Carmi's late brother Michael's best friend. Richie is feeling aimless. He used to run shit when the restaurant just slung sandwiches, and now he can't figure out what to do. We learn a little bit more about his family life. He's got weekend visitations with his five-year-old daughter. His ex-wife, Tiff, is played incredibly by one of my absolute favorites, Gillian Jacobs. I love her. I love love Gillian Jacobs. Um, And she's kicking ass in her career as a lawyer. She's gotten engaged with a new guy but she still tells Richie that she loves him so Richie squeezes tighter trying to project manage the renovations at the renovations at the restaurant and basically fucks everything up all the time and this all comes to a head in season two episode seven forks where to get cousin Richie out of his hair Carmi sends him to stage which is like a week-long trial that Carmi worked at earlier in his career Before we talk about how any of this has to do with Taylor Swift, a little more behind-the-scenes info about The Bear. The show is created and largely helmed by Christopher Storer, who, like Carmi, grew up in the Chicagoland area. And there are a lot of elements of The Bear based in real life. Storer's oldest friend is named Chris Zuccaro. And Chris is the owner... I'm going to use last names because they're two Chris's. (laughs) <laughs> Zucchero is the owner of the Chicago restaurant called Mr. Beef, who, which he inherited from his father. And the Carmi Richie relationship is based on the Chris's store and Zucchero. 
Carmi's story is also mirrored in the story of Doug Stone, who's a Chicago restaurateur who in 2006 made Hot Dogs, which is uh, like a hot dog place. He made his hot dog store a world famous place because he started serving like high end hot dogs based around like foie gras. Sure. Which is something mentioned in the series. Quick aside, have you been to Chicago much and gotten to eat within Chicago? I have been to Chicago. The last time I was in Chicago was 2015. So I, ha- I definitely haven't eaten any of any of this fine dining stuff, but I have had a real Chicago hot dog. Nice. I've had real Chicago deep dish. <laughs> Hell yeah. About it. But I do remember I also was there first and last in 2015. I was covering Lollapalooza for Hell Spin yeah. at the time. And I was covering it with... A writer who lives in Chicago, still lives in Chicago, and she took me around a little bit as much as we could if we had time. And everyone I met who learned it was my first time in Chicago, all of them, I'm not exaggerating, all of them were like, it's your first time in Chicago? Are you a foodie? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what is with this city's obsession with food? It it is one of the (laughs) biggest foodie cities. And I was like, I like food, but... (laughs) I think watching the bear and getting a little older, because at the time I lived in New York where I was like, well, there's no city better than New York. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. New York sucks. (laughs) Take that path. I I will not. I hate New York so much. Uh, Oh, my God. (laughs) I am anti. I am super anti New York. Okay, that's a conversation for another time. But we're going to table that. But I'm I'm not going to let you forget that. For its verisimilitude, The Bear also uses Canadian chef Maddie Matheson, who was the executive chef of the Toronto restaurant Parts and Labor, and who in season two is a co-executive producer on the show. He also plays a fan favorite character, Fack, the guy who's always trying to fix things, never Love gets Fack. to cook anything. <laughs> Love Fack. And we meet Fack's whole fa- what some of Fack's whole the fa- family. The faculty. The yeah. Fa- yeah. The faculty. The, the faculty, or the, I was going to say the fat, the faculty. Faculty. But also the faculty. Yeah, pretty good. To keep things as accurate as possible, Jeremy Allen White went to cooking school for two weeks and then staged in the kitchen of multiple restaurants. Among them, the Michelin star rated Pajoli. This is to train for the show. And no hand doubles were used in the making of the show. So all of the chopping and prep is done by the actual actors, which for someone like me who has horrible knife skills is extremely impressive. Truly. Um, for someone like me who refuses to cook for many reasons that I won't get into here, but part oh, of pa- I'm interested. <laughs> um, well, first of all, it just never interested me. Sure. Like I don't have the patience. Will you to... like make yourself a sandwich? Yes. Okay. But I don't actually like my well, define sandwich. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, yes. or like uh, you got some turkey and some provolone in the fridge. Yeah, um, no, I, you know, I would really rather have Taylor make me Hell sit. yeah. Because Taylor, like, he's like a secret, incredible sandwich maker. <laughs> Gourmand. <laughs> and he, he really takes care of all the cooking in our house because he just 
wants everything to like taste, sound, and look better. And he has that like patience element. So I just hand it off to him. But sure. when when I was younger, it used to be like, oh, I'm working so much and I live in New York that I don't have time. So I'm just living off was, of what I was li- going to say, <laughs> is it because you lived in New York, but I didn't want to poke the bear. That's like part of it. But the other part of it, too, is that I just I, I mean, I used to help my mom sometime. My, my mom actually worked briefly in a restaurant for free. She was a personal chef for for pay. Oh, wow. She took a break from her job in the healthcare field, and she was a highfalutin Medicaid managed care like director. Oh, wow. And really, really high up there. And then I think she burnt out for a bit, and then she, she went to some culinary classes at the local community college and got certified to be a personal chef. And she was doing that for a little while. It was like all pre 2008 recession. And I, and I remember that she worked at a restaurant and one I think last time I saw her, I was like, mom, did you guys do like the yes chef sort of thing? She's like, yeah, 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 we, we did that. And I was like, cool but i think also she would offer to teach me to cook like well someday you'll have a family and oh maybe you'll need to know this and now you're you're in your 20s and you need to maybe you'll do meal prep and i think part of me was just like i don't wanna (laughs) yeah and and tying it into your quote-unquote job as a woman in society is kind of not great yeah yeah i think uh i think i had enough people over the years like exes not not the exes themselves but like their parents mm. people just seem to assume that i would start cooking as though like you're a woman now and you've flowered into this domesticity you're a woman now. <laughs> and i on some level i think just resented that anyone would tell me what i should be doing in terms of my domestic life sure. and and then at the, but if I really, if I wanted to do it, I would do it. And that's just the person I am. I'm like, if I feel like it, then I will. And if I don't feel like it, then I won't. And I never felt like cooking. Okay. I'm not going to make you cook. <laughs> I know that, that you and Leanne actually have some great cooking. Yeah. Baking. I'm not sure exactly who does what, but I feel like whenever I'm at your, like we're at your apartment, you always have something brewing. That's tasty. Yeah, Leanne, Leanne does a lot of cooking and, and is really great at it. And I do like cooking quite a bit, but, um, but yeah. she does it a, a little bit more than I do. Yeah. Well, anyhow, should we dive into Forks and listen to a little bit of Love Story? Hell yes. Okay, good. Now, this is very important. In the episode, they use Love Story Taylor's version. The, of course, the, they, they, the, they have to use They Taylor. have to.
why does it matter? Isn't Taylor just greedy and trying to double her record sales by re-releasing all of her records? Absolutely not. Please tell me why this is not the case. In 2019, Taylor Swift's masters were sold to Scooter Braun. And if you aren't... (laughs) Famously good person, Scooter If you aren't familiar with Scooter Braun, he is a high-profile music manager. He manages the careers of Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato... Carly Rae Jepsen, I think, for a time. For a time. I want to say Ariana Grande, but Sounds right. many, many high-profile pop stars, they are managed by him. But I think he is more of a mogul at this point that rather than just a music manager. He is like a big business mogul, and he and Taylor Swift historically do not have good feelings between their parties. And in 2019, Taylor was trying to buy back her masters. She had left her longtime record label of Big Machine Records, which put out every album leading up to 2019's Lover. And Taylor wanted to own her masters, ultimately. Can you you give us a little rundown on what owning your masters means? Because I, I think that a lot of people make the assumption certain assumptions about recording artists that might not be true yeah so when you sign with a record label when you see money from your songs whether it's now or 10 years in the future it all depends on what the fine print says in your contract and we think of taylor swift as this titanic pop star who determines every corner of her career today in 2023. But when she was just starting out, she would have signed a contract with Big Machine that uh, a lot of the time when artists are first starting out, they don't have a lot of leverage because they haven't really sold anything or done anything. They get this huge cash advance from a record label But they are essentially in debt to the record label. And anyone who is making money off of their songs will kind of be everyone before the artist because there's so much that they basically need to do to like get this artist up and out and promote them and have people know who they are. And so we're going back to like 2005, like mid-2000s era Taylor Swift. And so... Big Machine owned the rights to all of her songs. If anyone was making money off of those songs, it would be Big Machine. So a little bit about contract law, because this is the same with with writers for screen and mm. for, for movies and television. If this big cash advance is important. So if a company pays you for your work, so I commission Rachel to write me a book, that technically is known as a work for hire and i own the rights to the book not rachel because rachel has received payment and i own the copyright to it not her which sounds stupid because it is stupid but recording artists like taylor swift especially recording artists who are getting their first dose of big label attention these are the way the contracts are structured so that the corporations are the ones that own the copyright to the song and they can license it and they pay 
a certain designated amount of residuals out to the artist. This is the same way it is in the movie industry as well. And so Taylor, in addition to all of those costs that, that Rachel's talking about, which a company would refer to as recoupable. So every, every dollar that is spent by the record label needs to come out of Taylor's pocket before she sees any payment. Does it sound like the company's paying themselves twice? You're right. They are. Mm. And so all of this led to Taylor in 2019 saying like, Hey, this deal kind of sucks for me and mm. I'm Taylor fucking Swift. So I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah, so Taylor Swift, by the end of her contract with Big Machine, would have been a very different Taylor Swift than the one, in terms of leverage, than the one that started out with Big Machine before she ever put out like her earliest album. So the rub and what is rumored and what Taylor Swift herself has talked about was that she was in talks to buy her own masters back from Big Machine, who ultimately ended up selling those masters to Scooter Braun. And there has been some back and forth around what actually happened. And there ha- there has been some he said, she said. But that's what is largely understood to have happened. And then Braun ultimately sold Swift's Masters to Shamrock, which I believe is a venture capitalist Yeah, firm. some finance yeah. thing. Yeah, and... Made like he made like four hundred and five million off of it. So what? And they tried to make good with Taylor. Like Taylor, we had nothing to do with the scooter thing. And yeah. she's like, yeah, kind of fuck you though. Yeah. So by deciding to re-record her catalog in 2019, this would give Swift full ownership over the new masters, including the copyright licensing, and that would devalue the big machine-owned masters. An unbelievable bluff call. Truly, because I think at the time it was like, "What are you gonna do? Re-record all your songs?" Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll we'll see how that goes. But 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 Swift, she turned it into like she is a marketing genius, Correct. because she used basically every new recording to revisit, like take her fans on a journey with her and revisit this time in her life. And that's kind of connected over to what she's now doing with the Eras tour. Which is the most revenue generating tour of all time. Or and deservedly nonsense. so. It's literally the best show I've ever seen. <laughs> and I'm not just saying like you can't just say, oh, well, Rachel's a Swifty. So, of course, she'll say that. No, no. No. I mean, I'm I'm just saying like. Oh, those out there. Yeah, those out there. You the, all. The, the haters who would say, oh, Rachel's a Swifty. Therefore, No. It doesn't really matter how you feel about Taylor Swift or her music. This show is legitimately like on a whole other level of any like mm. I, I think that live performers will study it. <laughs> yeah. <There's>... For <laughs> for its success and like why this broke so many molds. So anyway, it, it remains one of the best things I've ever seen. And she did it partially by dividing her songs, her albums into chapters of her life and she's like not even that she's, no, she's like she's younger what, than 33 yeah but she has so many she's such a back catalog and, and she's and been doing this for so long this is kind of a page out of madonna's book because madonna famously also went through like phases and eras and personas and, yes that's a and, great that's a perfect comparison so taylor uses it as like this marketing opportunity 
and to bond with her fans, essentially, and and revisit her own work from, you know how you're like, I, sometimes people say, I wish I could go back in time, just like knowing what I know now. Sure. that That's like the mindset that I think she's doing. Speaking of bonding with her fans, the our song of the week, which is Love Story, parentheses Taylor's version. I don't know this song super well. I don't know that I've ever heard the song all the way through. I know this song because it is all over the internet because people are proposing to each other. Yeah. At Taylor Swift concerts at like a specific part of the song where Nell to the ground. Like Mary Me Juliet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so speaking of like, and we can, we can do a whole fucking episode about Swifty's parasocial relationship with Taylor and that she encourages because yes. that's part of the marketing of the thing and like whether that's healthy or not whatever it's happening and so this song has a second or third life as this big romantic gesture that the Swifties will do for each other at the shows yeah early in Taylor Swift's career well, it's the, the the writing. So this song first appeared on Fearless. It came out in 2008, and it's since been re-recorded to be Fearless, Taylor's version. Taylor's but w- version. when it came out, Taylor Swift was like barely 20. She's like a 18, 19, 20. And she was still practically a teenager. And a lot of her songs were written from a very like rosy. She had not been jaded by the horrible world yet. <laughs> Pretty much. And um, so she takes a very romantic, like happy ending in in the actual era show. I do seem to recall she did sing this song and she was in like a big, like romantic 18th century gown. And even in the music video, she's just in like it's it's very like I don't want to get Edwardian, I think I I don't want to get my time (laughs) period wrong, but it's picture her having just watched like Pride and Prejudice and and fantasizing about her Mr. Darcy or something. And only in this case, it's actually love story itself. It's basically like a Shakespeare, like a rewriting of Romeo and Juliet. So instead of like these two protagonists would be lovers, like want to be together, but their families don't approve of the guy and instead of killing themselves at the end of the song she has them be proposed to and get married so it's very like starry-eyed teenage but but it is written extremely well so don't discount like let's not discount the talent just because of uh its innocence the things that make teenagers good songwriters are the same reasons that we make fun of teenagers is that they feel their feelings like really fucking hard yeah. And so I think that there's like, you know, no, you know, I'm, I'm younger. I'm older now than all of my favorite songwriters were when they wrote my favorite songs, which is like fine. It's just like they, they had that fire inside of them. And I'm not saying that this is one of my favorite songs, but like it is a song written by a teenage girl, largely marketed to teenage girls. It does not mean it's not a good song. Yeah. But it, and it also takes you back to if when like I've listened to the song. A handful of times because this was this was actually the first re-recorded Taylor's version single oh, that came out. I dropped it on my tunes I listened to in the car playlist, and I I legitimately wasn't into Taylor Swift yet in 2008 because I was like just graduating college, and 
probably like more interested. I, I I don't know. I probably didn't realize that Taylor Swift is for everyone, not just teenage girls. Yeah, Wu Tang <laughs> is for the children. Taylor Swift's for everybody. <laughs> so this is one of those songs, as is a lot of. I mean, doesn't like just take you across the eras, and and you yourself will feel the way that you felt. Like it will remind you of that part of yourself by listening to a song like this or just like substitute Taylor Swift for whatever you enjoyed when you were a teenager and you will feel like those intense feelings again. So can you explain to me as as a Swifty, can you explain (laughs) to me the context of the song? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, Richie Jermakovich is like not someone who is going to be transported back to a time when he was a teenage girl. Yes. Well, in the second season of The Bear, we find out, I believe Taylor Swift first enters the chat in season two. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like yeah. episode three or yeah, four. And so, so Richie, he's got his daughter for the day and he says something like, like, I love hanging out with you, just dropping her off back at Tiff's house, his ex. And he's like, I love hanging out with you. And sorry, I turned off Taylor Swift. Like, I love Taylor Swift, but sometimes it's like just too much or something like that. I just that. needed a break. I just, I, yes, yeah. I just needed a break. And so that's the first time we find out, well, his daughter's obsessed with Taylor Swift, of course. And later in the season, when we get this flashback episode. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> which I barely made it through, honestly. Like, that just made my whole body like crunch like a tin can emotionally yes. on so many levels episode well, i think six six the christmas episode yeah we see it's Maybe. a flashback to like i think it's supposed to be 2014 in taylor swift's 1989 era and we see richie and tiff are still together tiff is pregnant tiff is wearing a 1989 t-shirt she loves taylor swift and if that connection wasn't solid enough when Richie drops his daughter off after he says I love Taylor Swift too I just needed a break they do this weird silent like they're making faces at each other they're sticking their tongues at each other and then in this Christmas episode which takes place five years before that Tiff has some nausea she goes to take a nap in Carmi's mom's bed and they do that same like tongue they make faces at each other and you see how, how truly in love they are. And so I don't know. This, this killed, this whole fucking thing killed me. Yeah. I mean, Tiff is off screen for the majority of the show prior to the Christmas episode. Yeah. Only entirety really, of season one. You're only really playing catch up. You're, you're only getting what may have actually happened with Richie. Cause when we first meet Richie in season one, he's, He's loud. He's abrasive. He's annoying. He's politically incorrect. He's a, he's just someone who, like, you think, I need to get this guy out of here so that I can make whatever needs to happen, happen. Like, you're not helping. You're hindering. And Richie's been told this, I think, enough times, both verbally and non-verbally, so that he has a very low opinion of himself. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why he, like, That's why it, he right? lashes out so much. So it's like this vicious cycle of his own self-hatred and especially in season two when the whole crew of the bear are getting ready to launch this thing and it's going to be this like high-end eating establishment as opposed to like a rough and tumble sandwich shop 
there's a lot of anxiety among all the characters about what's this going to mean for me? Am I going to be able to stick with this? Am I going to be able to adapt? And in season two, episode seven, Richie learns that, yes, maybe there is a way for me to adapt. Yeah. So I think it's time to talk about Forks. Yep. So in this episode, Richie has to stage at some super famous Michelin star restaurant. Yeah. Right. And he is the type of person that is like, this is fucking stupid. Why is it called staging? I'm I'm just working here. And, and his what does he have to do? He uh, the, all day. The first, the first week of working at at this restaurant apparently is polishing forks. That's all he does the whole time for the first few days. He meets the supervisor of Noma, who is named Garrett, and tries to pull the Richie thing on him, right? And is like, this is bullshit, cousin. Like, what is this nonsense? And Garrett pulls him outside and is like, I fucking love this. I used to drink, and I don't drink anymore. I can control myself, and now I live to serve people, right? I live to give people a great experience because they spend their savings and they plan vacations around coming here. Yeah. So there's a great article in Decider by Nicole Gallucci about this episode and the moment that we're talking about today. Yeah. So to read a bit from their excellent observations, Forks finds the stubborn, directionless, hot mess training at Carmi's old stomping grounds, Noma, for a week. And the supervisor named Garrett has him tirelessly polishing forks. Richie initially sees the assignment as a cruel joke, an elaborate scheme for Carmi to get him out of his gorgeous hair. <laughs> it is gorgeous. Gorgeous hair. During the bare renovations. But after Richie learns his ex-wife got engaged and is put in his place by Garrett, who asks that he respect the restaurant staff, diners, and crucially himself, he embraces the experience, readjusts his mindset, listens, learns, applies himself, and starts to realize his worth. I just want to jump in, and this is me speaking now, that there are a few instances in season two where Richie is like, I'm 45 years old. What am I doing? I have no what skills. Am I, yeah. What am I going to do? I have no skills. He is floundering and very anxious about what his age says about him and what he has maybe failed to achieve at that point. And I think in addition to learning to respect himself in this episode, he also realizes that, hey, it's never too late. And that sounds a little bit trite, but he like meets enough people, especially the restaurant Noma's owner, played by, in a great cameo, Olivia, Oscar winner Oscar, Olivia Coleman. Yeah, who is peeling mushrooms one at a time. And she shares with him something vulnerable. And he realizes, hey, like a lot of the people he meets, they have not great histories, like personal histories. And it's like this place has kind of redeemed them. And they have learned to respect themselves via hard work. And there's, well, we can talk about the, like, how healthy that is, I think, right. later on in the episode. But that's essentially like what, like, Richie is learning. That 
by serving in this way, he is filled with a sense of purpose. Now I'm reading again from The Decider. So he has found that deep sense of purpose that he was searching for at the start of the season. And his heartwarming epiphany scene set to Love Story Taylor's version was so unexpectedly perfect that it made the writer uh, ball uncontrollably. This specific track hit so hard because Taylor Swift references were a running Richie-related thread through the season, one that helped us better understand his past and ushered him into a new era. Plus, after nearly two full seasons of Richie struggling with the grief of losing his best friend, Mikey, Michael, searching for his place at the restaurant and feeling like a burden to everyone around him, and a, a certain sense of healing came from seeing him scream, sing, and smile along to his girl T-Swift in the car after a rewarding day of work and soul-searching. So as we mentioned, this ties in a lot with his relationship with his ex-wife and with his daughter. And so a, okay, let's just say it. The rest of the music in this show is very cool and, and very sort of late thirties, early forties, white dude <laughs> mixtape. That is perfectly <laughs> just perfect description. And I'm in my late thirties. I fucking get it. We've got Wilco. We've got Refuse. We've got the replacements who I love. We've got Mavis Staples who I love. We've got the psychedelic furs. We've got so the many replacements. Oh my. The, I almost was like, we should do the whole, whole episode about the replacements. I know. So Bastards of Young is quick, so good. Is actually. So I first realized who the replacements were when I was a teenager because I was obsessed with Green Day. And I was reading an interview with Billy Joe Armstrong, who was talking about how much he loved the song Bastards of Young by The Replacements. And I had not heard of The Replacements yet. I think I went on <laughs> LimeWire or... Hell yeah. <laughs> or One of the Napster. best music videos, too. Mm -hmm. And then listened to Bastards of Young and was just like, wow. And like that was a world-changing moment for me musically and like ever since that like can't hardly wait is an incredible song and that sure, that's what yeah. that's what carmy eventually and he finally kisses claire bear too and it's very it's very intense <laughs> it's very intense but let's let's go go on this extended metaphor for me if the music in the show is like richie right very set in its ways very cool not super open to emotions doesn't get out of its comfort zone the moment that richie finally sees the light and and changes who he is as a person is also the moment that the show abandons the quote unquote cool ironic whatever soundtrack and embraces like this very popular pop in yeah i think that one of the things that Olivia Coleman says to Richie, and I'm just going to call her Olivia Coleman because I do not remember her character. The greatest. And she says something about always being open. Like that's how you grow, essentially, is by always just keeping an open mind and being absorbent to new flavors and people and experiences and. Or maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe this is what Luca is saying to Marcus. Yeah, I think that's it's, it. I think that's what Luca. Luca but it's, it's everybody. Yeah. But right? it's everybody. It's, but it's, it's a everybody. theme that's running through the show of like those who have too much fear to evolve and change, and those who want to change 
and are successfully able to change. Richie is able to change and becomes this incredible asset to the restaurant. Extreme. Versus, like, I think Tina is another amazing example because when we first meet her, she's like, to Carmi, like, what are you doing? She's like, she's call- the one that she's- calls him Jeff. Yeah, she's right? calling him Jeff mockingly. Yeah. And then by season two, she is with it. She's gone to culinary school for a, a bit. If you look at her trajectory versus Ibrahim, right? Mm-hmm. So they go to culinary school together, and Ibrahim is so set in his ways and and also has like legitimate fears. So I, I don't think that being set in your ways means that like it doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. He has legitimate fears about being passed by. And so he quits and eventually comes back to the to the bear kind of hat in hand and they find a place for him. But, yeah, the two of them start at the same level and then just kind of com- go in, in completely opposite directions because she's open to change. Their relationship ultimately comes back to a good place. But these are two people who have worked side by side. They're of a similar age. Yeah. Their paths have been running in tandem for so long and then it's really an interesting study in how different people react to change yeah exactly exactly right so uh, a little behind the scenes info about the first taylor swift name drop when richie is dropping off his daughter at tiff's house and he said i love taylor swift i just needed a break so eben moss Bacharach told screen rant that the taylor swift bit that was a day of edition by christopher store and this is what bacharach said i was like oh my god that's such an incisive piece of dialogue where you just see everything and it felt so true i was really impressed as chris who has no children came up with such an insightful piece of a dad in the car yeah i mean i think that it it really does Danny Boyle, who is a director of many great films, Slumdog Millionaire included, talks about it as the off-screen movie, right? One line can paint an entire the picture of an entire world off-screen. And and I think that this is a really good example of that. Because you know exactly what the last 30 minutes of his life was like. Huh, I love that. Yeah. And so Christopher Storr, in addition to creating the series, to directing it, to writing it. He also acts as music supervisor to the bear with producer Josh Sr. What can't this guy do? He does everything, and he's pretty freaking good at it. So what did we think about season two? What What are your overall thoughts of season two of the bear? So I'll, I'll answer that by telling you i have to admit that when season one was on hulu i was unable to finish it because i was so stressed out it is extremely stressful by watching it i recognized the bear as a great show and i do love jeremy allen i was like wow this is so cool like i've watched you on shameless for years and now you're like mega famous and this is so great. I'm so happy for him, like parasocially. But I was just feeling, I don't know, I was just too stressed to really watch most. It, it really made me, I mean, this is probably a sign of how quality the show is overall, that, that it has such a, a visceral effect on my brain and my body. And I think every time I had the opportunity to finish season one, I was like, 
oh, there's probably something that will something anxious stress. Yeah. So I don't love like whodunits, and I don't love like shows that are basically built to stress you out. I mean, when they're really good, I do make myself watch them. I can get over myself, but. This is for the reason why I had a hard time getting through Succession because it was just like stressing me the F out. And anyway, so I, but I'm so ultimately glad that we arrived at the bear to, for this episode, because it did make me get over myself and finish out season one. And then you were jump, open to change. Yeah. I'm open to change. Never say I'm not open to change. And I, I jumped right into season two and season two, I think broke me. Like, but by the end, I was just like, clutching my hair in yeah. my hands because like i really i mean i really love molly gordon and I, I love molly gordon i i actually had the chance to interview her a couple of years ago and i like wanted this for carmy without getting into specifics or spoiler territory like i want i want him to have like accept love from somebody and i was reading some vulture recaps and the recapper, I think, is Mara Eakin, who used to work at AV Club for many years. And she made a really great observation that basically everyone around Carmi has grown in just a remarkable way, but except for Carmi. Like, does the bear need Carmi? It's interesting because, so this is like the very end of season two, but. Yeah. The last episode of season two is a callback to the single take episode of season one where they're just absolutely getting fucked. Yeah. And Carmi has dropped the ball repeatedly throughout the season by not getting their walk-in fridge fixed. The handle comes off. He gets locked in the, the walk-in. And the team survives and thrives without him. And his immediate reaction is, I have let everyone down by having a girlfriend. Yeah. So I can no longer have a girlfriend. When he should be saying, oh, my t- I trained my team so well. Yeah. That they performed admirably without me. And especially yeah. Richie. And his reaction to being locked in the fridge actually made me think of something <laughs> that my former therapist used to talk about, which was like, for someone like Carmi... And probably a lot of the people on the show in different ways, they don't look at themselves because they are so busy jumping from like one task or calamity to the next. And by being trapped in that refrigerator, Carmi is, well, A, he's stuck with himself and he has to look at himself but because he's so psychologically damaged, he's only seeing, he's just spinning out. I right. thought he was going to have a full on mental break, but. I mean- he almost did. Like he, he almost his conversation did. with Richie is pretty, pretty yeah. harrowing. And him just imagining all the worst case scenarios because he can't physically see what's happening. He is just like filling in those blanks in his brain, like the worst case scenarios. Spiraling. Like, I, like I said, he is full, full on spiraling. And yeah, like I think what you said, it just hits the nail right on the head. Like instead of saying, "Wow." I've trained my team perfectly and this could actually be something like I don't have to be here in order for this to run successfully. Instead, it's like he takes a conversation to heart that he had with Unc Jimmy, who was basically like, hey, 
if you take your eye, he uses this whole like convoluted baseball metaphor that yeah, I'm not right. even, I'm not even going to try to get into. <laughs> I, I, there's so much fucking Chicago Cubs in that episode. I'm like, I don't get it. Yeah. I, I kind of, I just like my, my brain went blank when I heard that. I, I kind of saw where that was going and I was like, yeah. oh man, now he's going to break up with, with Claire yeah. and he's just going to like, think that in order to be successful he ha- he has got to live his life alone because he's a tortured genius and tortured geniuses can't have relationships but this is what everyone is learning in a different way so sydney's learning this lesson carmy's learning this lesson richie is kind of learning this lesson because he's now got something to dedicate his life to marcus is learning this lesson tina's learning this lesson ibrahim is the only one who has fucking boundaries and he- and he has to come kind of crawling back to the rest of the crew and so i think that the show is aware of how toxic this is and in season three if we get a season three you're gonna see that bear fruit hopefully bear fruit yeah (laughs) i really like the second season it's really tough to when when you're that hyped and you have that long between the seasons to like live up to expectations but i i really think that they did I, I love that we saw a big hustle into getting the restaurant open and getting permits and electrical and gas lines and all this stuff that like is very real about starting a business as opposed to just like, oh, we're open now and things are fine. But I also really do fundamentally kind of feel weird about the direction that the restaurant is going in because they've taken away an affordable neighborhood spot and turned it into this like fine dining very expensive establishment. So like part of me just wants them to go back to doing really good beef sandwiches. Oh, that that is interesting. And so what do you think about the like because they have that drive-through window, window. Yeah. where it's like the history has been reduced to a window. My hope for the show is that the bear yeah fails and they realize that what the neighborhood needs is good affordable food that is made with the same amount of love yeah. as the fucking prawn foam whatever bullshit wouldn't it be cool if they could have both like if they could have the fine dining establishment and then like one door over they have a little sandwich shop yeah the bear and the beef yes We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Colleen Koparek, a labor organizer and former pastry chef, about the bear, being in the kitchen, and how exactly she feels about mustard. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Hi, my name is Colleen. I'm a labor organizer, former pastry chef, and line cook here to talk about the bear. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Aviv. Hi, Kylie. <laughs> yes, hello. Hi, Colleen. <laughs> Did you find watching a, a kitchen scenario play out to be so stressful that you could not watch it because of how real it was? Or were there things that you were like, no, wait, it wouldn't be that way. Or like, how accurate did you feel the depiction was? I had a panic attack during the episode of the tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ticket machine was going off so much it gave me a panic attack. And I have not watched the second season because of it. Dude, the ticket machine was going off so much it gave me a panic attack. Yeah, and and they call back to that in the second season. So, so you have not watched the second season on purpose because it's just too... I don't want to say it's too real because that feels like... Why do you need it to be accurate? You're never going to do it. You're never going to be on your feet for 12 hours in a kitchen where someone is like breathing down your neck. Why do you want that accuracy? I mean, that's a good question, right? Why do we want these shows to be accurate? I think, you know, in a perfect world, we like to think that if we are being tortured with anxiety in a show... It's like to like show the audience a glimpse into like a world that they don't know, don't understand. Whether it's industry or cultural background. Yeah, whatever it is. And so I think then it, it it's like the outsiders are looking to all of the like people in the restaurant industry that they know to be like, is it really like that? And we were talking off mic about how you shouldn't walk up to someone <laughs> that you know that works in a restaurant and be like, have you seen the bear? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a, a working theory, though, as to why we need these shows to, to or be, movies to, to be, be as accurate as possible. And it's probably why, Aviv, you can't watch mus- musician uh, biopics. Yeah, right. right. It's the same <laughs> thing with the, what was that drummer movie? Whiplash. Oh, Whiplash. Oh, Whiplash. Yeah. Like a lot of people who have played music like professionally, like in symphonies or... Yeah, or tar. Like is tar really that? Yeah. That's... Yeah. People yeah. like... It, yeah. But I have a working theory as to why we really need that accuracy now. I mean, one, of course, I think is the TV revolution that's taken place over sure. the last 15 years that has opened up so many different new like experiences on our screen, but also the internet. There are so many more voices. It used to be that a show would come out, someone would review it, and that was the feedback that you'd get. And and you would have no outlet other than maybe like a very early internet message board mm-hmm. to complain. And now you there are no shortage of outlets to complain. Yeah, to dissect. <laughs> to right. dissect. It would, wouldn't happen like that. Blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Which I think like restaurant people love like the sort of like critical eye of like well you know there's a better way to do that or like there's like you know restaurant people that go to restaurants that are like well he did this and like they're it's just always this running commentary which is like i think indicative of the larger culture of surveillance in restaurants and stuff too every single second is accounted for and even if there's no like surveillance in the sense of like oh there's like a like a camera or something on you, there's always somebody watching you because there is inherently no trust because it's just assumed that you are going to fuck it up. And so you have to be watched all the time. Plus traditionally restaurants, you know, before they got cool or whatever were, I mean, they were always cool, but before that, you know, the restaurant jobs were 
more looked down on, right? They yeah. were mm-hmm. for, they're considered like unskilled labor, like the Department of Labor has like rankings considered unskilled labor, which is horseshit. Um, but it was also like a refuge for people who were maybe unable to find a traditional job, right? So if you had a criminal record, if you were undocumented, if you were a single mom, like all of these things that society has said is unworthy of being able to participate in the economy, you could find a restaurant job, right? If you moved somewhere and you just needed a job, you could go probably work in like the town restaurant or whatever. That brings up an interesting point, the idea of surveillance, because we are, the show is a surveillance of a restaurant too, right? So we are the, the people we the viewers are the people that are like accounting for everybody's time and watching them fuck up and being like, Oh, the boss isn't going to like that. And they're like implicating the audience in that, in that process. Right. Which I think they do a really good job of like getting you into that mindset of like every second counts. This is something, despite the fact that I was late getting over here, (laughs) but like that's something that I really struggle with. Like not working in restaurants anymore is like not having to have every single second accounted for and not having to maximize my time in a way where it's like, I could just walk around the grocery store. I don't have to have every single move planned out and like have my grocery list to be maximized, maximized, maximized. And I think for non-restaurant people, like you, you don't know how to do that. That's another thing that they really try to hammer home in the show because the restaurant that Richie Stodge is at in episode seven, which is the one we're talking about, has a plaque on the wall under the clock that says every second counts. Yeah. Every single second counts. And like part of it is like, yeah, if somebody orders a steak mid-rare or whatever, and like it does sit on the grill for an extra like 30 seconds, like by the time it hits the table, it's not going to be what the guests ordered. It's going to cause this whole fucking thing. Right. So the way that they were able to get people, particularly in that one episode that maybe not be able to watch the rest of the season, they really did capture like how intense your time management skills have to be and how when you're doing that for 10 to 12 hours a day, oftentimes with unpaid overtime, it really does fuck with your brain. Yeah, it burns out your like stress receptors yeah, in a exactly. weird way. Yeah. Just like people who work in kitchens get numb in their fingers. Yeah, I have no feelings like emotionally or <laughs> manually, I guess, anymore. I, I think music does play a huge role in creating that sense of chaos that we're talking about in the restaurant, right? The mm-hmm. anxiety spike that all three of us, I'm sure not just all three of us, but everyone feels while watching this show. I think music really helps translate what might only be able to be understood by people who have been there into like a a way that the the rest of us can understand which is ironic because there's no music during dinner service you can't listen to music interest that's so interesting because the every big every time they're getting crushed the like the volume of the music just gets louder and louder and louder yeah because if it was silent you would I don't know. You're the TV guy, but like the, you might hear the music from the dining room. Hmm. And like, I think that's probably like a filmmaking technique to like have music and have it get louder because it's going to make people more anxious. But sure, like, yeah. you can listen to music during prep. You can't listen to music during service. So I know that accuracy is not necessarily what your goal is in watching something, but you're what, so you're watching a scene from the bear. Mm-hmm. They're getting crushed during dinner service and there's a loud song playing in the background. Do you think that that is, adding tension or do you think that that is actually making it easier to swallow because I think it's making if it, was it easier to silent. swallow for sure because it's like 
everything really is a food pun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Not on purpose. Um, I think it's, it's probably, I don't know. I feel like it softens it for people because you, your brain can be focusing on that too. Like, Oh, I do really love, like when they play welcome to the jungle, like that's a classic, like kitchen prep song where it's like, we got to fucking go. Uh, but I think that that like gets people like, Oh fuck. Yeah. I love this song. Yeah, gets gets some amp. It's interesting because I never thought of it. I like I'm trying to rewatch those scenes in my head now with no music, and they would be like more. You should action. do a cut of it and try to get put it on YouTube and not get flagged. <laughs> Good luck. But yeah, I do think like it's interesting to talk about music in kitchens because for certain kitchens, like when you're allowed to listen, not every kitchen you can listen to music, but like when you can, like that can be a really good bonding experience for people and like you can get exposed to so many different new songs, new genres or whatever, because it is just like, can just be a motley crew of people who are working together who'd otherwise never be spending majority of their weeks. You know, sometimes you're waiting 60, 80 hour weeks. You spend more time with these people than you do with your family, with your friends. That is your life. So you can use music as a way to like, you know, set the vibe when you share the ox, you know what I mean? That's a really good way to build solidarity. Mm. That's a really good way to get people to continue to either work together for the boss or against the boss. In my case, uh, always trying to push for using shared resources like the ox cable, like, you know, things like sharing your equipment. Like if you have an offset spatula and you're not using, let somebody else use it. Um, but that can be a really good way to also kind of like when you go somewhere in stage, right? you can kind of check the vibe out of a kitchen and say like, Oh, well, what are they listening to? Right. Right. So we talked a So, so in the main episode, we talked a lot about staging the entire season talks a lot about staging. Marcus goes to stage at Noma. Uh, Richie goes to stage at the three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago, which is Alenia. Alenia. They probably like, don't name it though. I, pr- I don't think I don't so. I don't think they ever do. Because some of the articles that we read and sourced for this episode confuse that with Noma. Right. Um, what is staging? <laughs> staging is a French word, French word short for stagiaire. Um, and it's basically where you go work an unpaid shift or many unpaid shifts. So there's no other industry in which your labor is as disrespected as restaurants. If you're starting off a business relationship doing work for free, um, that's not going to get you any respect down the line. Like you're having to play into this system that is telling you right off the bat, you're so replaceable. We're not even going to pay you to come into work for four yeah, we hours. Get, we get someone else for free. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And especially in these bigger, you know, VC funded restaurants like Noma, like these like world-class whatever restaurants, Michelin starred, you know, they have so much money coming in from outside sources. They're not making money from the food, right? They're not making money from wine sales and stuff. How's that possible? Because there's rich people who are just like, I love restaurants and I want to give somebody an outlet. So it becomes almost like this, like uh, De Medici style, like patronage, right? Where it's <laughs> like, I am of this like um, patronage class, right? And so I can fund something like a soup, like high-end restaurant or maybe not even super high-end restaurant um, to allow this one auteur to have a outlet for their vision, right? To have an outlet for their creativity. And then I can show up on a Saturday night and like be like, oh, I know the owner. And take a tax write-off. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's some tons of other reasons why you would want to because the restaurant doesn't make money. So it's probably a tax write-off if you're losing money on it. Um, but people can do it for like whatever reason. Maybe they do think like, hey, this person's really talented. I have the, the means to like support them or whatever. But 
that doesn't answer the question about staging. Right. <laughs> staging is anywhere from working like an evening with a crew just to see if you vibe, see if it's like the kind of environment you want to be in and you want to work there. It's basically like a working interview. But staging at these bigger restaurants can go on for months. So a lot of these restaurants like Noma, Alinea, all of those places will rely on like an army, basically. They're generally referred to an army of unpaid stages. And that kind of comes like again with that like military stuff we were talking about earlier. Hence the like in unison, yes, chef. Yeah, it's yeah, like, sir, exactly. Yes, sir, yeah, right? yeah. It's like- yeah, yeah, exactly. So our song of the week is Taylor Swift's love story, Taylor's version. And it's a traditionally romantic song, yet here it's used to not only tie together Richie's relationship with his ex-wife and daughter, but also his relationship to his life's purpose, which for the rest of the season at least seems to be working his ass off to make sure people have a good experience at his restaurant, suffering for his art and his job. Protestantism. And and that, yeah, exactly. The, the, the Protestant founders of the U.S. kind of used work as like entry into heaven. Yes. Like the more you work and the harder you work, the greater your chances of getting into heaven, ultimately. Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic of like your work will get you into heaven. Like mm-hmm. the only thing as a Jewish person, the only thing I can think of is like what they put on top of the concentration camps, which is work makes you free mm-hmm. right which is like you know i not to not to bring us all the way down but like i think that there is that kind of slave to the wage mindset in american culture that is romanticized yeah the atlanta called it workism there's actually workism. a whole atlantic article that talks about the replacing of of religion with work in Ugh. america called workism and so yeah so i i know a lot of pieces of art that will romanticize dying for whatever thing, whatever thing you love. And I'm wondering, I don't know whether the show has set their opinion or, or is being true when it's showing Richie, like celebrating finding this new thing to be obsessed with, but it's just like such an interesting question to wrestle with. And and uh, as a foil for Richie in this season is Sydney, who has to explain to her father that she, in order to help the bear get off the ground, is foregoing her salary for six months. She doesn't, I think, doesn't have an ownership stake in this restaurant. So, like, huh, huh? Colleen, <laughs> so having there- only known you for 13 years, <laughs> how do you feel about this? So there's this thing called wage theft and workers everywhere are entitled to the work that they do. If you are paid an hourly wage, you are due that money. But right? Colleen, but <laughs> Listen, she she refers to this as deferred. It's still wage theft. If you are not getting paid for the work that you're doing, you do have rights. There are federally protected laws under the Department of Labor. You can file a wage theft complaint. It takes a long time, but you can't get that money back because it's your money and it's owed to you. Sydney willingly foregoing a salary in addition to the wage theft angle here, um, I think is largely indicative of a culture that, again, inherently doesn't respect your labor, but is trying to extract as much from you as possible. So she's seeing this as an opportunity to have this creative outlet to hone a skill to, you know, probably get some like accolades or whatever. Um, There's She says she wants a star. 
Right. So if that's like she she's ambitious in a way that the restaurant industry exploits hmm. and it is expected that you are going to work as hard as humanly possible for the restaurant because there's this sort of twisted sense of your self-worth that comes from the amount of work that you're able to do perfectly. So it's not just that you're getting things done, it's that you're getting things done perfectly. When I was a pastry chef, a lot of, is something I've had to like sort of work out since then is feeling like I had a bad night because we didn't sell a lot of desserts. And knowing that I was going to have to use those numbers that I was keeping track of on my own to justify my position in the restaurant. Right. Because dessert, there's like these people out there that like don't eat it. I don't understand. And I can't respect that decision. (laughs) But um, because it is kind of like an extra thing, like, you know, you get like, oh, it's somebody's birthday. We should totally get dessert or whatever. Um, It's the first thing that's cut. Right. Yeah. So when the restaurant decides they just want to, the owners want to make more money for themselves, they'll cut a position like the pastry chef. So I always had to be hyper aware of like what people were into, what was selling really well, what adjustments could I make to be doing something cheaper, faster, better, more attractive to the customer while still maintaining my creative vision and the voice of the restaurant. Yeah. And she's getting messaging from her friends in the restaurant industry that are like, oh yeah, I, I tried to open up a place with my partner and until they screwed me over and yeah, like, yeah, took yeah. all my money. And, and you can see her like the wheels turning, thinking to herself, well, Carmi ultimately Carmi's screw different. me over. Carmi loves me. But that's like a really, that's that echoes. We were talking about abuse and stuff earlier. Like that's an abusive relationship. There's echoes. I think of like abusive romantic relationships all throughout the restaurant. It is very much a like, oh, but I love what I do, you know? Yeah. So, so you justify it. Right. And that's not to say that that is like on the worker or the people in the relationship to not do. What I would like to see is just larger respect for the work that's being done. You work in fast food, that's still a skill. You work at a high-end restaurant as a pastry chef, that's a skill. It's not to say one is better than the other. Yeah, there's no such thing as unskilled labor. Exactly. And so there's certain positions that I think workers can take to realize that collective power. That would be like the key part of it, right? Is working together and realizing that all workers are being exploited in some way. So if you're being paid... You know, the minimum wage at a fast food job and they're dicking you over on hours and they're not giving you enough hours to actually get the company provided health insurance and you don't have access to a car because you're making so little money and you're then having to pay so much money for childcare. Like that is like very clear exploitation because it's like on an economic sense and a systemic sense, right? Uh, because there's no, you know, free at the point of care healthcare in this country. Right. You know, we have to work those hours to get that health care because we don't have infrastructure set up for childcare. The fast food worker working an erratic schedule is going to have to scramble and pay more probably to find that child care. Right. Because we don't have those supports. That worker is very clearly being exploited and we can see that. Right. But when we're talking about somebody like Sydney or like what I was doing in restaurants, the exploitation becomes more about like, how can I extract as much creative capital from this person while stringing them along with the idea of a Michelin star or a raise unheard of in a restaurant? 
a raise. Come on. Or string somebody along with like, this is going to be a great launching pad for the rest of your career. Oh, That's like a big one. Exposure. Basically, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So you're doing all of this work at a managerial level and you're not getting paid for it. So you're getting the experience. Love that. But it's still exploitation. So yeah, they might be making a little bit more hourly, but they're still getting exploited because then your self-worth becomes so tied into the work output. So what do folks do about wage theft in your industry? So any worker can go to the Department of Labor website and file a complaint online. They also have a phone number that you can call and they have services available in pretty much every language you can imagine. Um, This is available for any worker, documented or not. Um, What they're going to do is kind of just do a basic intake. What's your name? Where do you live? What restaurant do you work at or what business do you work at? What's the address, phone number, blah, blah, blah. Somebody will call you back and ask you for more details about the nature of the wage theft. This could be something like a tip pool that's not being split up right. It could be managers taking tips. Management cannot be in the tip pool. If you have hiring and firing abilities, you're not able to take tips. It could be something where, like for instance, my first restaurant job, we weren't allowed to clock in until a certain hour. Even if we had to show up a few hours earlier than that, to work. So we were doing unpaid labor every single day. So something like that, I could be like, Hey, that's fucked up. I don't like that. I could have called the department of labor, you know, like 12, 13 years ago or whatever. The statute of limitations is unfortunately a federal level three years. But what I could have done is called and said, Hey, this isn't going to show up on my paycheck, but I am getting to work at these, at these, this time and doing three hours of unpaid labor every day. Is this anonymous? So well, dep- no, it's not anonymous. It's doesn't matter. You don't need a social security number is what I should say. Right. But will the Department of Labor tell your restaurant yes. or your place of it work? it's an investigation. Colleen but they won't tell said, them you did. If you call and you say, I want to keep this anonymous, the best way to do this is to do a complaint with a bunch of your coworkers. So get a bunch of people together and call. Because the Department of Labor will do random audits. But if you and the rest of your line are like, dude, this is fucking bullshit, because I know you're talking about it anyways, (laughs) like call and I'll file a complaint because that's going to flag the investigator's attention because there's that many people that are experiencing this problem. There's power in numbers. Solidarity is the basis for rectifying all of these problems. Uh, Another way that wage theft can happen, and this is really important reason to be checking your paycheck every single time you get one. If you live in a state where you're required to have a pay stub, just get in the habit of checking it to make sure those things like your hours are properly calculated or that the rate they're paying you is what was agreed upon. But another big thing to check is if you're a tipped worker, not just that you got the correct amount of tips, but that the hourly rate averages out to $7.25 an hour. So you could live in a state with a sub-minimum wage, which means they're paying you less than the federal minimum wage with the idea that this so-called tip credit, which is just the money you make in tips, will make sure your hourly averages out to $7.25 an hour. Or more. Or more. Yeah. Hopefully more. You're worth more, baby. Demand more. Uh, But that's like where we see another fair amount of wage theft in the restaurant industry is you're getting paid this like mega low hourly wage with the idea that like, you know, the generosity of the customer will pay your rent or whatever. And sometimes that's not what's happening. Sometimes what's happening is you're not averaging out to that federal minimum wage. So if you average out to, let's say $6 an hour. Yeah. Whose responsibility? So is it- your boss has to pay, like if your tips weren't getting you up to seven twenty five 
as an average hourly wage, they need to up your hourly wage, right? So the minimum they can pay you is $2.13 as long as the tips are adding up to average out at $7.25 an hour. If it's like a super slow week, like, you know, in like the East Coast or something, and it's like super snowy for a week. And so nobody went out and you're a bartender and you're paid $2.13 an hour and you made 50 bucks on Saturday night because it was a blizzard. That's not going to necessarily average out to $7.25 an hour. So the owners would then have to pay you whatever the supplement, full. whatever. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's why it's called the tip credit because the tips are basically credited to the restaurant, to the owners to pay their staff. That's so fucking stupid. There have been a lot of pieces of media in the last year or two that have ostensibly been about class consciousness and food service or hospitality, right? There's the bear, the menu, Triangle of Sadness, which was nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. What do you think it is about now? And what do you think it is about food service and hospitality specifically that lends itself to stories of class consciousness and awakening? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. There's some statistic that's like 40% of all Americans have worked in food service at some point in their lives, whether it was like, you know, you were like a dishwasher in high school or like a lifer, right? Like it, a lot of people go through that industry. So it's like universally kind of accepted as like a experience, right? But I think also it's like the sort of logical conclusion to being obsessed with restaurants. Like when restaurants became cool, and like being a chef became like, you know, they were saying like Anthony Bourdain's like a rock star, mm-hmm. you know, he's like this Keith Richards dude. You know, you're making me think of that line in When Harry Met Sally, mm-hmm. restaurants are, are to the 80s, what theater is to the 60s. Exactly. Exactly like that. I think that's that's exactly it. I think it's a sort of logical post-COVID conclusion, right? If there's no restaurants to review because you can't go out, you should start reviewing the labor practices. And I think there is a lot of like you were saying earlier with the internet, people, the more people have access to the internet and the more people can speak out. As restaurant reviews, we're getting more and more clout, right? And more and more people wanted to read recipes from the star celebrity oh, chef. Yeah, and it's like, like this ancillary market of Alison Roman's cookbook exactly, and blah, blah, exactly, blah. Exactly. So it's like there's this whole culture and this whole like industry built up around celebrity chef culture. The people that are actually doing the work then also had the ability to speak truth to power through the internet. So whether it's like on Twitter or message boards or commenting or whatever, because more workers have been able to speak up, it's like kind of created a discourse. And then there's people that decide that this would make a good movie or television. I don't know. That's on you. That's a question for (laughs) a a challenge though. It's kind of like, yes, challenge accepted because it wasn't, it hadn't been done. Right. So there's a novelty to it. And what I fear is the novelty will wear off and people are going to get, it will. I mean, there's no, don't fear it. It's going to happen. happen. Yeah. But I think that it is this sort of like, you know, the, the year that we decided that an asteroid might come and get us. It's like everyone. Wait, what year was that? 1997, right? Because we had the movie Armageddon, Deep Impact and Armageddon, oh, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. together, or the volcano. I knew this was like an actual thing that happened. Right. The documentary, the documentary Armageddon. But yeah, like I think it's got to be COVID and the idea that all of a sudden restaurant workers were some of the only people who were working, yeah, and still making Bob next kiss. to nothing. And everyone's like, wow, this is pretty fucking bad. This sort of 
awareness, class consciousness, awakening, whatever you want to call it was happening pre-COVID. But then, like you said, when like they're the only people working and they're not getting paid and the people that aren't working are having an awful time with unemployment because we have this thing called the subminimum wage, which is like if you're taking tips, what's called the tip credit, legally at a federal level, you can be paid $2.13 an hour. If that's what's on your paycheck as your hourly wage, and that's how you're figuring out what your unemployment checks are, you're fucked. Mm. You're fucked. It's just yet another barrier for folks working at the subminimum wage to lose access to the meager benefits this country has to offer. Jesus. It's a real uplifting episode. Okay. Okay. This is an uplifting one. I teed this up in my intro. What are your thoughts on mustard? I get flustered thinking about mustard. Hell yeah. Don't even get me started on a mustard custard. <laughs> I knew this was an inside joke, but I don't feel like I have to understand it in order to find it funny. You're going to think that's about it the literally entire, every, yeah. you're gonna, every time you see mustard now. I get flustered thinking you're gonna about get, mustard. You're going to um, be like, oh, I get flustered thinking about mustard. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. I want to leave people with some actionable something that they can do. If they feel exploited in their workplace, underappreciated, underpaid in their workplace, under benefits, if they're experiencing wage theft, what are some things that people can do? So the first thing to realize is like you're not alone. There are workers going through this everywhere. There's no shame in feeling like you're being exploited. There's no shame in realizing you're being exploited. And it is happening everywhere. It is happening literally everywhere. So what folks can do, right? The antidote to fear is hope. So you can start working together to talk about some of these problems in your workplace, right? But, Colleen, it's gauche to talk about money with your coworkers. It's actually a federally protected right to discuss your pay with coworkers. And it's a federally protected right to talk to your coworkers about making improvements to the working conditions, right? So you have these rights. Exercising them takes guts, but you can do it. I know you can do it. If you're having an issue with like a larger workplace condition, they probably are too. And it's one thing to kvetch and bitch and just not get anywhere with these conversations. But if you can say like, hey, we should be getting paid more, that is a solution, right? It's not just like, oh, this fucking sucks. I can't pay my rent. I'm not making enough money. And this is, I think, where a lot of these these coworker relationships stop, right? Just like, right. oh, the boss sucks. I, I'm not making enough money, blah, blah, blah. They're stealing my tips. Right, exactly. How do we go from there to the next step, which is doing something? Solidarity, baby. Wage transparency. Hell yeah. It's absolutely working together and coming up with a solution that's appropriate for your workplace, right? So in some places, like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie. Like, sometimes you do just need to leave. Sometimes the correct thing to do, or not the correct thing to do, probably the most supportive thing to do for your mental health is find another job. But if it's something where you really love your coworkers and you love the work that you're doing and you want to make it better, stick around and make it better. Talk to your coworkers about what the issues are. Come up with some solutions. Come together. Realize your collective power. Write a demand letter to your boss. Give it to him and say, this is what we want. And then document everything in case they retaliate. <laughs> Because retaliating is illegal. Mm. Retaliating is also illegal. But then also patrons, like restaurant customers, just have to understand that anytime they're, I don't know, it's like anytime you buy anything, it, somebody's getting fucked. Somebody is not being treated with respect like as a human. It doesn't matter if it's buying a computer or buying a meal, right? There might be a 5% service charge 
for health insurance, you have no way of knowing that money is actually going to health insurance. There's no way to track that money unless you're the owner. That service charge is not legally counted as a tip. It goes anywhere. You just have to assume that even if the food is really good, even if the staff is really happy, like they're not making enough money, they don't have health insurance, they've been on their feet for 12 fucking hours, you just need to be nice and vote I guess that's the stupidest fucking answer, but it is just like be supportive of policies that are going to give working people access to the benefits that the upper class already has. And that is most seen on the local level. You're not going to see an, a national election about labor unions or whatever else. Yeah, like, completely agree. Super uplifting. Thanks. You're welcome. That's well, why I'm here. I call. I I need someone sunny. A sunny disposition. I call Colleen. You know, just happy to be here. So normally around this point in the show, we talk about if there was any uptick in chart performance, any noticeable changes for what this needle drop did for the song. And I personally don't think that is necessary to do in the show only because this, this has everything to do with Taylor Swift's position in the industry She's Taylor Swift. she yeah. is she is a monolith one needle drop will not make or break her and i think since she is currently on her eras tour which has just taken over for i think since april tiktok and twitter and instagram and the internet as we know it. Congress and <laughs> yeah, and it's going to Europe in the fall, I think. And there, uh, if anything's going to have like an effect on her sales figures, what have you, it will likely be that. And the bear is just lucky to get a needle drop. So honestly, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's really, I think, more the bear that stands to see that spike rather than the song and its streaming numbers. Because you've got like a whole wave of Swifties who are going to be like, oh, wow, like apparently this episode of a show I can watch on Hulu has you know, the Queen song. <laughs> queen T. Yeah, Queen T. And and for, for its own accolades, the bear is also just doing... On every metric measurable, the bear is doing incredibly well. Jeremy Allen White won a Golden Globe for his portrayal of Carmi. Ao Edebiri and Eben Moss Backrax, both of their stars are on the rise. Uh, Ao Edebiri is going to be in the new Marvel movie, The Marvels, and Eben Moss Backrack was in Andor, the Star Wars show. He shows up in. He's been doing it for decades and just grinding it out and every time i see him now i'm like oh it's cousin richie oh i I first saw him on girls so i i just still think of his girls character to be totally honest like the pacific northwest knit a man sure i found out that he is not actually from chicago and i feel completely lied to he is from fucking massachusetts (laughs) and i i have seen him in in a dozen things and just he's never really made an impression on me like cousin richie has he's so so good in this show you can kind of tell how big a show is in the culture by the level of cameos they get yeah huge 
Oscar winning stars are not going to show up for a couple episodes on a Hulu FX show because it's breaking the bank for them. They're going to do it because they love it and yeah. it's part of the culture. And by that measure, The Bear is the the most culturally relevant show on TV. I'm not going to spoil in what context, but season two guest stars, the aforementioned Gillian Jacobs, Joel McHale reprising his role as the chef that terrorized Carmi, John Barenthal, who's back as Michael, Molly Gordon, Oliver Platt is back. John Mulaney, Sarah Paulson, Bob Odenkirk, SNL's Alex Moffat, Will Poulter, Oscar winner Olivia Coleman, and Oscar winner Jamie Lee Curtis as Donna Berzato. Yeah, by the end of her holy turn, shit, it's like I—I I mean, we know that Jamie Lee Curtis is a masterclass in acting, but I—I I like needed a minute. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's getting that Emmy. And probably lending just as much credence, real-life chefs make cameos in this season, too, including uh, chefs and restaurateurs, including Rob Levitt, Donnie Medea, Dylan Patel, and David Posey. You can tell who the chefs are because they're the ones that are not enunciating their lines. (laughs) Nice. It seems like making the show is a real love story. However, the topic of labor and exploitation of workers is relevant behind the camera as well as in front of it. The Writers Guild of America, as of the recording of this episode, is in their ninth week of their strike. And Christopher Storer, co-creator of this show and writer and director of many of his episodes, he attended the WGA Awards in March with a negative balance in his bank account. He had to buy a bow tie on credit. No. And Alex O'Keefe, one of the show's staff writers, says that he understands he's part of a collaborative effort, but he says that the writers don't receive a fair share of what hit shows like The Bear earn. And so as much as the restaurant industry needs to change to value their and stop exploiting their workers, so does the entertainment industry. Yeah, just pay creative people, for God's sakes. You consume our stuff collectively, whether you're eating it or listening to it or watching it. This is this is why Storer, I think, can write from this authentic place is because it is the same model of consumption, uh, creation and consumption. On that, on that, that fucking optimistic note, brutal yeah. note. That's our episode <laughs> of this week. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our stuff at the InSync Pod. Let us know if you have a favorite needle drop that you want us to cover. Tune in next week when we'll be talking about the Wes Anderson masterpiece, The Royal Tenenbaums, and another Richie, Richie Tenenbaum, and the song Needle in the Head. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.